Ruth is towards the beginning of the Bible. It's a very short book, only a couple of pages in each Bible, so um, it's a little challenging to find. But after you pass the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah, you then get into Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. So it's the eighth book in the Bible. If you find Judges, it's the one after. We're going to begin a new series in this wonderful short story, and I want to read to you the whole of the first chapter this evening, which really lays the background for all that is to come, and is in many ways quite bleak and dark, and I want to prepare you for that because we do need to spend some time just thinking about what's happening here. Let me read to you then Ruth chapter 1. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years and both Marlon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So 10 years in, we have this sequence of tragic events that hit Naomi. And then comes a turning point in the narrative when her story takes a new direction. It says, then she arose with her daughters-in-law, to return from the country of Moab, for she'd heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also. If anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. 
And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, I want to just begin by explaining why we are going to be opening the book of Ruth over the coming weeks. And there are a number of reasons why I find it a compelling um, story for us to look at. The first is simply because of its beauty. And it may surprise you, but it is my conviction that the stories of the Bible have not only written for our instruction in terms of what you could think of as their didactic or teaching quality, the things that we can learn from them. They're also written to resonate with our hearts. The stories of the Bible are there to evoke and provoke and awaken the right kinds of desires and loves. And there's something good and healthy about dwelling in a story like this one, which is so resonant with the goodness of God, as you'll see in the coming weeks, and so wonderfully fragrant with his kindness and love. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. Another thing I'll say about it is it's deeply theological. This short book, it's only four chapters, a brief story in the context of the scripture as a whole, really does speak in deep, profound ways. It's very rich and will really merit our and will reward our meditation upon it. And the last thing I want to say about it, just at a high level, is that I would say this book is, is subversive and in really important ways, it touches on some of the most interesting issues and conversations that we have in our day and age around femininity and masculinity and ethnicity and justice and these kinds of things, but does so in a typically scriptural and subversive way, a way that maybe catches us by surprise and which we don't necessarily anticipate. And so I think this book is going to be fascinating and rewarding and powerful for many of us. What's it about? Essentially, the book of Ruth is a love story. It's a, a romance at its heart. Not in, the, um, not in the way that romantic stories are typically dealt with in our day and age in the kind of form of the romantic comedy in which just, just about every story features the bumbling idiot of a man uh, pursuing a woman and the kind of great question of will she, won't she, and all that kind of angst and tension um, in the narrative. It's not like that at all. At the heart of this particular love story are issues of life and death. Marriage had a different quality um, in ancient times when so much hinged on the possibility and the potential of whether you could marry. Issues of life and death. Issues of the sovereignty of God and his plan all through history because this book has extraordinary consequences in history even to this day if you understand it in its, in its greater world context. And I think most important of all, it just resonates with the gospel and the redeeming love of God in ways that are captivating. That's the kind of love story that it is. It's a thousand or so years before Jesus. And what this little tale is about is about a small family, 
a few individuals who become part of the backstory for the coming of Jesus Christ on the earth a thousand years after them. So just as in Hollywood, there is this, um, this kind of interest in these origin stories, particularly around the comic books and so on, and you'll go back and see the origins of certain characters. And I, it's my understanding that Amazon is producing um, a backstory to the Lord of the Rings with taking Tolkien's Silmarillion. So you educate yourselves, friends, and go away and, and, and watch that when it comes out. But um, something like that's going on here. The story, the Bible is, is, is a, a great narrative that's the Lord Jesus Christ is the character everything leads up to and from. And you can't understand him out of the storyline of what happens in the Old Testament scriptures. And it is of great importance and fascination that these characters anticipate him in a couple of ways. One is because he is descended from some of the characters in this book. And therefore we can trace his lineage through them. And another is because in a wonderful way, this short story is, really encaptures the gospel and what God, really the entire story of the Bible in one little book, which is a godly man redeeming a foreign bride and saving her. That's the Bible's whole thing, reduced down to the events of a few individuals' lives, as you'll see in the weeks to come. I'm struck by it, and it's, it's a captivating story. Now, in our first study of this book, I want us to, we're not so much going to move into our, um, the study of Ruth herself, though she does feature in this first chapter. What we need to do this evening is start a couple of steps back from Ruth and look at her mother-in-law, Naomi. The book starts with the unbearable suffering and pain that Naomi endures. And the temptation for me as a preacher and for us as readers is to quickly move past the pain that she's experiencing in this chapter and jump to the good stuff because the book is so full of good stuff. But the goodness of God does not just hang in a vacuum. The goodness of God is felt against the backdrop of our desperation and the plight that we find ourselves in as humans. And that's why a story like this, the first chapter just opens with the unrelenting tragedy and disasters that have unfolded for this woman, Naomi, all of which we need to sit with and understand if we're to then reflect upon the goodness and the grace of God as she experiences him in the years that follow in the rest of this story. We're going to look then at Naomi. The first thing we need to do is just take a few minutes to meditate upon exactly what it is that she's gone through. Now, let me just ask with you why that's such an important thing to do and why that is spiritually important for you and I. I don't know what you're going to go through in the years to come. If you live long enough and love deeply enough, you will suffer heartbreaks in this life. How you react to suffering becomes extraordinarily important. And one of the great temptations that you may experience when you go through difficult things in life is to begin to imagine that no one's been through what you're going through. To begin to tell yourself the story that your pain is unique. 
And that can be a very dangerous place for a Christian, especially because in the midst of the agony and the confusion that you're going through, you can then begin to justify and rationalize poor decisions, wrong reactions to the pain that you're experiencing, and the tendency to react against God in particular and to wander away from Him. And it seems to me that one of the reasons why the Bible is so clear in relaying to us the accounts of suffering, because its pages are full of pain and the sufferings even of men and women of God, is to show us in no uncertain terms that there is pain in this life, that the best is in the next life, in our resurrected form. And therefore, it immediately disabuses us of the idea that what we are going through is in any way unique. And instead, paints for us images and pictures and narratives of individuals whose piety saw them through the darkest days of their lives. We read the Psalms and we learn to pray through our pain. We read stories like this and we learn what we're to do and how to react to the pain that we go through. Most of you are relatively young and so what you have experienced in this life is probably much less than what you will experience. It's even more important, I think, to be prepared in advance. No doubt Naomi, like many of us, as she began her life, set out somewhat optimistically And had no idea the things that she was going to be met with. And yet in the first five verses of this book, we meet with a sequence of disasters that strike her. The first is that she encounters famine along with her family in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem, the the name of the town that they live in is House of Bread. You can imagine the kind of bitter irony of being A child of God saying, I live in the house of bread, and yet looking around, there's no bread anywhere to be seen. And that leads to a second tragedy for them, which is that they they then are uprooted through the choice that they make, but in pursuit of of prosperity and of, of provision. They are uprooted from their home among their own people in Bethlehem and travel and become displaced people, refugees essentially in a foreign country in Moab, which is on the other side of the Dead Sea. The Moabites were no, no real friends to the Israelites. They weren't at war, but they were not particularly friendly with them. And then, having uprooted this husband and wife, Elimelech and Naomi, with their two sons, and settled in this new place as foreigners, Elimelech, the provider in the household, dies a premature death, leaving Naomi with her two boys. And if that were not tragic enough, we then hear of these two lads themselves dying. So Naomi is left bereft of her family, her her nearest kin, with these two daughters-in-law hanging on her for help and provision. I want to ask the almost silly question, but how do you think she felt? And the first thing I think you have to see and that comes through in the story is that she has endured almost unimaginable strain and stress. Many of you will be familiar because of its fame with a particular photograph 
that featured on the front of the 1984, a 1984 copy of the National Geographic magazine. It was taken by a photographer called Steve McCurry, and it featured a close-up portrait of a young girl from Afghanistan who was anonymous even to the photographer when this went to publish, but was striking because of her youthful beauty and her bright green eyes that shine out from the photograph. And you'll all be familiar with this particular image. Steve McCurry went back 18 years later to go in search of this same girl that he had pictured back then and who had become famous without her own knowledge. And he found her in 2002 and published a second photo, the same pose, as it were, of this woman, now grown up. And what is striking to us as observers is the toll that the years have taken. You think, although we, I know nothing of the details of her life, you see pain etched on her face. You see the transformation of a difficult life in a difficult country and how that, that has a, an, an impact upon her very appearance. When Naomi... At the end of this chapter, return, she's been in Moab for 10 years. She returns only 10 years later to her own people, the people she grew up with, and arrives home. The question that they ask upon her return home, it says, the women said in verse 19, is this Naomi? She has been so worn and torn apart by the depth of the pain that she's been through, that she is almost unrecognizable from the woman who left with joy and optimism, possibly, ten years earlier. And I'm, I'm sure that along with the strain and the grief that she's been through, there has been this deep confusion that swirled around in her mind as she's meditated and ruminated on the facts of her life and the things that have happened to her. There's some irony again in that her husband's name, Elimelech, the Hebrew directly translated means, my God is king. So that every time she spoke to and addressed her husband, she was making a confession, my God is king. And for the believer, when you go through suffering, the most difficult thing you may face is knowing how to square that confession, my God is king, with the reality of the pain and the dark valley that you're walking through. That is not a problem that the unbeliever faces. The atheist has other problems with suffering. For example, the fact that it is totally senseless and, and, and has no meaning to it whatsoever. It just happens. But the believer faces the, its opposite problem. That this suffering has happened under the supervision and sovereignty of an awesome God. And therefore raises all kinds of questions in our minds. And you can see how these questions have so played on Naomi's mind. That twice in this chapter, as she's reflecting on the bitterness of her life to date. The conviction that she has come to is that God is punishing her. And she says it to the girls as she's dismissing them. And she's saying, look, go back home. I'm going back to Bethlehem. You go to your families. She says to them, it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then she says it again upon her arrival home when people are asking, is this Naomi? And they can see the worn and haggard look in her face and the, the big um, bags under her eyes and the darkness in her visage. And she says to them, 
I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Now, I don't want to quibble particularly with the theology. I think this woman is speaking out of her grief. And in a sense, these things have happened under the sovereignty of a holy God. But I think at the same time, she seems to have arrived at a wrong conclusion here. And her understanding interpretation that God is actively against her. But this is the danger, isn't it, that when we experience suffering, it's not only that we go through the strain and stress of the experience itself, but then that is compounded and exaggerated by all the churning thoughts and the confusing thoughts that we experience in the midst of it. Why has God allowed me to go through this? And at its lowest point, you can arrive at a conclusion like this one that Naomi has arrived at. God is against me. So not only do you have the sadness, you then have all the religious angst that's weaved in with it. I've spoken to enough suffering people over the years to know that this is a real problem. It makes me wonder what sufferings may be etched in our faces if we were to look ahead in 10 years' time. I don't want us to carry a sense of foreboding, of course. But when I think back 10 years ago, there are people who are part of this church who I've known since before this church even existed, who we knew each other in our youth. We knew each other before we had any wrinkles, before we lost any hair. And there was a sprightliness and joy and a carefree way in which we conducted our lives. And So many of those friends, even friends who are in this church, have gone through very dark seasons. Unspeakable tragedies. This is what Naomi's been through. Now, having reflected upon the reality of her pain, I want us now also to think about the power of lament in the midst of pain. The importance of lament. You see, there are wrong ways and very unhelpful ways that we can approach the reality of pain in our lives. One of them, it's very common, is to somehow seek to minimize it. To act as though it's not there. To keep your pain hidden. To put on a brave face. And I think there are many reasons why we do this. One is just because of personalities. Some of us are more private and want to keep our inner lies and thoughts more secret. There are also cultural forces that come into play here, especially for those of you who are born and raised here in the UK, where there are, there are um, expectations around how much you share and how much emotion you express. And generally speaking, the expectation is when you go through hard times, you bear up. And of course, that's also mixed in with the sense that the Christian should always be joyful. And I know that there are texts in the Bible where it says things like, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice, to which I want to say amen. But the Bible is not so naive or simplistic as to think, that we should be equally happy all of the time. Even the psalm says that the weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning, which is to say 
Life is seasonal. You'll go through all kinds of things in life and there will be time, as Ecclesiastes says, a time to weep and a time to laugh. But we are more accustomed, I think, in certain circles within the church to only expressing faith in terms of celebration and joy, which means it can be difficult to bring pain into the open. And then we add to that the problem of simplistic answers, jingoistic phrases that we use and trot out whenever somebody is in the midst of pain. We say things too quickly, such as God is good all the time, all the time God is good. Or we might say everything happens for a reason. And it's not to say that I don't think these things are true. I absolutely believe in the goodness of God and in the sovereignty of God over the, even the, the smallest details of our lives. But our inability to understand the complexities and the textures of the experiences of life, even through a biblical lens, the Bible doesn't just hammer us with those truths all the time. It enters into the varied experiences of life. You have to spend just five minutes of the Psalms, in the Psalms to, to realize this. Yes, the Psalms magnify God's goodness and his sovereignty. But they meet us in the, in the desert. Or they meet us in the valley. They meet us in the dark places. They meet us in the, in the, in the situations, like it says in Psalm 107, of experiencing like you're drowning. And then bring us to safety. In contrast to that, when you are reading this first chapter in which not only the events of Naomi's life are narrated, but also her reactions to them, one of the things that is most striking about this woman is her brutal honesty about the state of her heart. This is why I'm drawing your attention to this idea of lament, and it's important to us, importance to us. She's honest with her daughters-in-law about her hopelessness. She says, go home to Moab. I'm going back to my people. And they say, no, we'll stay with you. And she says, she says in a sense, do you think it's possible that I could have more sons to, to marry you? She says, I, I'm not going to get married and I'm not going to have any more kids. She says, there's no hope for me. And she's referencing there a custom in which if a man died, a brother might take the wife in order to perpetuate the family name. It becomes very important later in the narrative. That, that cultural practice. But she's saying, there's no hope for me. Basically, I'm going to die alone. And then, she's honest with her own people when she returns to Bethlehem about just how deep and exquisite the pain is that she's been through. When they ask, is this Naomi? And her name means pleasant. And she says, do not call me Naomi, do not call me pleasant. She says, call me Mara or call me bitter for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. One translator uses that play on words. She says, call me bitter, God has dealt bitterly with me. And he puts that in English like this. Call me Mara for the Almighty has marred me. She's been transformed even a very appearance by the, the experience of pain that she's been through. And she's honest also about this issue I've already highlighted of this, this angst that she has around her relationship with God himself. 
His hand is against me, she says. These calamities have come from him, she says. Now, the reason why I'm, I'm mentioning this is because I think that this kind of honesty is deeply uncomfortable for us. It's uncomfortable for us to give voice to honesty at this level when we are the sufferer because we are very cautious about what people will think of us and perhaps even nervous about displeasing God if we're too honest with what we really think and feel. And we're also uncomfortable with someone else voicing their suffering to us in these kinds of terms because we don't know what to do with it. We don't know, am I supposed to correct her at this point? Am I meant to do a Bible study with her? Do I empathize with her? What do I do? She's, she's just poured out her heart to me, and I, I have, I'm clueless. It's one of the most interesting things when you go through difficult seasons is to observe the awkwardness that many of us have around suffering. And I've been that person many times, so I'm not saying it in a judgmental way, but it's certainly been my experience this year. But the pain that, that I've been through, that a lot of people just don't know what to do with that. We're not comfortable, are we, with pain, and we're not comfortable with the honesty around it. What happens if we're not honest? Well, the opposite of being honest is being dishonest, isn't it? And if there is one thing that is most likely to damage your relationships, it is dishonesty. That's true at the horizontal level, isn't it, that Insofar as we are unable to open up about the realities of our experiences in life and the suffering that we go through, there is a breach between us and our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But it's true also in your relationship with God. Too often our prayer lives can be dominated by rehearsed and repeated phrases that we think we ought to say instead of the raw reality of the expression of the pain that you are in. This is why the Psalms teach us the power of lament. Because when you look at Naomi's life, what you see are signs of hope that her ability to honestly express her lament to other people and to God is the reason why she is still alive and why she is surviving. And I see that in a couple of ways. I see it in the fact that she still believes in and loves the Lord. She hasn't lost her faith. She's able to voice her doubts and her, her, her concerns around the way that God, she feels that God has treated her. But she hasn't lost her faith. And more than that, her heart hasn't lost its capacity to love. And you see this in the way that she engages with her daughters-in-law. How selflessly she dismisses them and sends them away so that she can go back to Bethlehem. She doesn't want them to be displaced as she has been displaced in Moab. She doesn't want them to be foreigners in her town where she grew up. And so she says to them, go and return each of you. And she says, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. The blessings that she's blessing them with are the very things that she would wish that she had for herself. The kindness of God and the experience of rest, of shalom, your house being in order. My husband at my side, my children healthy. The very things that have been taken away from her, that's what she wishes for her daughters-in-law. And I see that, I look at Naomi and I see a woman who 
Had she given way entirely to her bitterness and grief, she would have been incapable of this kind of love. Isn't it often the case that when people suffer unbelievable agonies like she's been through, that their lives become twisted in on themselves and unable and incapable of loving others? That is some form of spiritual death right there. But Naomi, in her ability to be truthful with where she's at, has kept the springs of her heart, the wells of her heart fresh. And she's able to give out love and, and affection and selflessness towards others. And therefore, there's hope in her heart, I would say, in the sense that there's hope for her is what I mean to say. And this brings me on to my final observation. We thought about the depths of her pain and her ability to lament in and through it. I want you to think finally, because this is the note upon which everything will turn as the events of this book now unfold in front of us, because everything gets better from here on. I want you to see the emerging shoots, you know, just as when spring comes, when the ground has been cold and, and hardened and brown with death. When spring comes, one of the most hopeful things you see is the emergence of spring flowers, isn't it? Daffodils and, and various other flowers I can't name that come out from the ground and fill our parks here in London. And they all speak joy and hope. And this is what happens in the seasons of life. And we begin to see these shoots cropping up through the ground, we begin to see gospel hope coming through at the end of this chapter that signals to us something about the love of God. Just pause with me and think about the importance of hope for a second. It seems to me that hope is a quality that can only honestly be held on to by the believer. Atheism is, by definition, a hopeless belief. Because hope is conditioned on it. It's necessary that you believe in someone who is both good and in control. And even if you take out one of those pieces, you can't have hope anymore. If he's good but not in control, if he's inept, then you can't be hopeful. Or if he's in control but he's not good, then you better be afraid. But the Christian, uniquely, I believe, even among world faiths, can, can solidly and confidently maintain God's goodness and his control. His goodness because of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross for us as the demonstration of his sacrificial love that he is for us and his control over all things and that the Son of God who died was then raised three days later from the grave. So that we of all people confidently stand upright and say, we know in the midst of whatever suffering, pain that we endure in life, God is good and God is absolutely in control. When hope dies though, even the Christian can begin to live functionally as though they were an atheist. Hope is oxygen to the, to the heart of the believer. Because our whole faith is, is built upon the hope of the promises of God. That even if we don't see them in fulfillment in this life, we will be on death with the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Hope is life. And this book, it seems to me, even though it has opened with such a dark narrative of the events and the condition of Naomi's heart, 
This book has been given to us in order to meet us in our pain, but then restore hope even to the broken heart. And we see these green shoots coming through, and I want to highlight three as I draw to a close here. And they're all in the last verse of this first chapter. Number one, it tells us that Naomi returned, that she returned home. That is a massive moment in her life. And it's resonant with, it, with gospel hope because so often in the scriptures, the return home speaks of the coming back to God and of the restoration of what was lost and broken. It's there with the return of Jacob from exile from his brother Esau when he returns home and everything is set right again. It's there with the return of Joseph when he comes back home to bury his father. It's there with the return of the Ark of the Covenant when it's led back into Jerusalem by David and he dances the whole way in front of the Ark. It's there in the parable of the prodigal son when Jesus speaks of him coming to his senses, having squandered all his possessions and met his lowest ebb and then he returns home. And upon his return home, he meets the running father, the father who loves him, the father who lavishes goodness upon him, and everything is made right again. It may be the case that you are someone who in your pain has wandered away from the Lord. And the invitation the Lord would give you, just as you see Naomi coming home, is that you will come home to your father. She returns home. Number two, she returns home with Ruth. Now, Naomi has just said, it's so interesting how she puts it like this. She says to her, her kin, the townsfolk in Bethlehem, she says, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. But she's wrong. And this is very typical of the distortion that can happen in our minds when we go through pain. She did not leave full. She had a husband and the two sons, but they left in the midst of famine. And she has not, in fact, returned empty. She's returned with this daughter-in-law who expresses unbelievable devotion to her, as we'll look at, God willing, next week. My encouragement to you, friends, is that the Lord will never let you be empty. It is true that the Lord may well allow you to go through experiences in this life in which the things you love are stripped away. And we have so little control over this, don't, don't we? And I cannot give you a reason for any specific instance of suffering that you may go through or have been through and why such a thing is removed from your life. But the Lord will never let you be empty. He'll never himself depart from you or take away the promise that you have in Christ. And it seems to me in the fact that Naomi has this devotion in Ruth who is attached to her, that it speaks to us of the love of God, his covenant love, because Ruth covenants to Naomi. And that covenant love can see you through even the darkest seasons of life. My mind is drawn to the example of the Apostle Paul when he was in the Philippian jail, in the jail when he wrote to the Philippians. And he was very much uncertain about whether he would live or die. He was contemplating the possibility of being executed, of everything that he loved being taken away from, had already been taken away from him, essentially. He had no, no one around him. He was alone. 
But there, as he's writing the letter to the Philippians, in the first chapter, as he's contemplating the possibility of his execution, he says to them this verse, which is worth committing to memory. He says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Which is to say, there is nothing in this life that can be taken away from me and render me empty because I always have Christ. Life is about him and death is about him. So it doesn't matter what they do to me. I belong to him. And it seems also that that resonates with what is taking place in in Naomi's life at the end of this chapter. The love of God has not been withdrawn from her and she is not as empty as she protests. It's true that in our suffering, the lens of suffering distorts us and can make it impossible to see the goodness of God's work in our life. Part of your healing and restoration is begin to see the ways in which you are more full than you realize. And this brings me to a last thing. There's a harvest on the way. The last line of this chapter is that they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Remember, she left Bethlehem in famine, but she comes back to this town in this moment of abundance and fullness. This isn't just a minor detail in the story because everything will pivot and hinge upon what takes place in this harvest season, as you'll see in the rest of the book. But more than that, As so often we see in the Bible, these things speak to us on so many levels as they ring true with the love of God and the way that he ministers to us. This speaks to us of the feasting and the abundance that God has for us in his presence. Part of God's gospel promise to each one of us is, you may experience emptiness in life, you may experience pain and suffering in life, but come to my table and there is fullness. It's there in the 34th Psalm when he says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's there in Isaiah 55, verses I'll read to you. It says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Come and have a free meal. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. These verses in Isaiah are gospel verses because they speak about the way that God wants to lavish his goodness upon you. There is no happiness, is there, like the happiness of a full stomach. The glow of good drink and good food. We've maybe had a little bit too much of that feasting over the last couple of weeks, but there's no happiness like it, is there? And when the Bible is searching for ways to communicate how we experience the love of God, one of the favorite ways the Bible speaks is to speak about feasting and abundance and a full stomach. So while Naomi has left in the midst of, her, of the famine, she comes home and God says, I want to feed you. And that's God's word to you as well this evening. Friends, you will face pain. You will face suffering. You may be enduring it even now 
And if you are not, you know someone who is. At such times, of course, it is important to suffer well. And part of that is the honesty of real lament, of dealing with our pain before God. But on the other side of that is the confidence that the Lord is good. And that he wants you to experience his goodness, not just know it as facts in your brain, but to taste his goodness and to enjoy it.